Good morning, everyone. Great to be together and start the week uh, listening to what God has for us in the Scriptures. You can turn with me to 1 Timothy. That's where we'll be this morning. And parents, if you would like your kids up through fifth grade to go to some age-specific teaching now that's offered, you can head out to the patio where there'll be volunteers. Of course, fine to have them stay here as well. Overnight, a factory of some kind was concocted in my face, and I'm pumping all kinds of gross stuff. So it's very likely today you'll hear me snort or cough or something. You've been warned. All right? So thank you for working with me in that regard. This weekend, um, just a quick mention of uh, the Grove Conference that we held. Um, We are part of a a collective of now 10 churches around the state that are uh, locking arms together to try to pool resources in order to plant uh, more like-minded, healthy churches around the state. And we were honored this year to host the annual gathering of those who were able to come from those churches. So Friday night and Saturday we had Uh, over 20 churches represented here, and uh, just a wonderful time of of fellowship. So thank you for giving so faithfully. It enables things like the lights to be on and the room to be cool, and that blessed uh, literally churches from from all over the city and the state. We were able to um, announce that uh, the leaders of the Grove have um, assessed and prayed over Uh, John Pope, who's over here, brother, um, our latest resident, and made the the decision together to um, set him forward as our first candidate to plant a church and pastor that. So hopefully next fall, Lord willing, that will happen. And the idea is all of these churches would be praying and asking people, hey, would you consider becoming a part of that plant? Uh, so that there can be a group starting together, not just two or three people. And so that's a wonderful thing that, that you're a part of by being a part of this church. So John, praying for you and excited for, for what's ahead. Today we're in um, the second section of uh, the book of First Timothy. So obviously our Bibles don't say section two. Um, they did get the chapter break right here, and that is a de- denotion Uh, that we're moving into another part of the letter. Um, If you're new to the Bible, we as as a a church family believe what what every other gospel preaching true church believes, and that is that God has given us his scriptures, that by them we have an objective place to go to know what he says, that we don't have to look internally to subjective feelings that vary depending on how long we slept last night and what we had for dinner and what other factors are present in our lives, but there is an objective external place to go to study and listen to what he has for us. And so every Sunday we just get together and open the Bible and and try to listen to what God would say to us, and that's what we'll be doing today in this second section. In the first section, um, we learn that people were teaching erroneous and dangerous doctrines and stirring up trouble at a local church in an ancient city called Ephesus. And that, of course, can happen in in any church. 
doesn't matter how wonderful the members are and how godly the leaders are, that can still creep in. And so we've got good reminders that we all need to be vigilant and on guard, not stuffy, not cantankerous, but sensitive to the fact that there are lots of things that masquerade as Christianity that are in fact not that. Today, as we turn to chapter two, the book pivots and it begins to reestablish for that church in Ephesus, hey, here's the practices, the habits, the rhythms that make a church healthy. And it seems clear that the church must have in some ways been wandering away from some of these things and that the teachings the different doctrines were having a corrosive effect on the family of God. And so we're being told here, here's the way in God's grace to get back headed toward health. We will be working through this list of patterns for the next several weeks. And as we get started, it's crucial to grasp that these practices were for all churches everywhere. And what I mean by that is, Paul isn't merely saying in this main body of the letter, hey, church in Ephesus, this stuff is for you. All the other churches can figure out what they want to do about those things. But rather, he's saying, these are essentials for every church. So the occasion for speaking of them may have been specific, but the content is not specific to that church. Paul begins with prayer. So the very first thing on his mind as he thinks about how do, how, how do we work together toward a vibrant Christianity grasping, deeply rooted church family? How, how do we go about that together? The first place his mind went is prayer, particularly public corporate prayer. And so, Questions you might have in your mind that this paragraph is going to answer are things like, why should we pray together? When we get together, what's the point of praying? And what ought we prioritize as we pray? And how do the the character and the nature of God relate to our praying? These are the sorts of things these verses address. If you would look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We could summarize the message of these seven verses like this, since the gospel is for all by both God's desire and his design, then we're to pray for all. 
Since the gospel is for all by God's desire and design, let's pray for all. In our time this morning, we'll work through this in the order it's given in the passage. That is, we'll talk first about the fact that we're to pray for all people, especially leaders, and then the basis for that praying, or the grounds or the reason for it, is first, God's desire, and second, God's design. These are incredibly compelling verses. I think among the most densely packed, beautiful descriptions of prayer and what prayer's for in our entire Bible. And it may feel like, how could we spend 40, 45 minutes on these simple verses, yet there's so much here that there's simply no way to get to it all in one Sunday. I hope you'll consider spending more time in it, praying about it, talking about it together, because there's a lot here. So first, let's think about together that prayer is for all people. As the Apostle Paul thought about the behaviors that if done with the right motives would sort of reset the broken bone of the church that it might heal and get headed in the right direction, the first priority the Spirit drew him to was prayer. It wasn't a new purpose statement. It it wasn't a bigger budget. It wasn't um, a rebranding and a new logo. It was prayer. Verse 1 makes that very clear with the words, first of all. This is the priority. Prayer is the Christian's and the church's greatest privilege, to have the, the doors into the throne room of heaven thrown open for us in Christ, where we're welcome anytime, to have free, unfettered access to God, literally any moment of the day or night at any place that we might talk to him. This is simply astonishing. Church on Milk, God longs to hear from us together. And of course, although it's not the emphasis of this particular prayer, God longs to hear from each of us privately, individually. He is attentive as we call on him with supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. I drove myself a little batty last week trying to understand the differences between those four synonyms for prayer. Read a bunch of commentaries, and uh, essentially there's been a very long discussion among scholars for many years about what, what are those four things. And uh, I'm encouraged that there is no clear consensus because it's not clear uh, to me what the differences between those four kinds of praying are. The point seems to be, Paul is saying in demonstrative language, all kinds of prayers should be offered for all kinds of people. That's what he's getting at. An example of a group of people that we should be especially desirous and urgent in our prayers for comes in verse two. For kings, And all who are in high positions, meaning 
people who are in some kind of authority, not that they live in a place of higher elevation, but rather that they have power or authority of some kind. Now, that, that might not strike you as scandalous, but I imagine some people in the church in Ephesus didn't like hearing that. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your government. Think, think back to your history classes. This is, this is during the reign of Rome. Ooh. And very likely, this is when Nero was emperor of the Roman Empire. And Nero, you may remember, was not in any way, shape, or form a godly man, nor favorable to Christians and churches. In fact, one of the great persecutions of the church broke out during his reign. He is known to have stuck Christians on wood, hoisted them in the air, and lit them on fire. And Paul here says, pray for Nero. God directed churches back then, and he directed all churches today to pray for our civic authorities. Now, this praying, of course, would include God restrain their evil behavior, help them see their need for you, and save them. Of course, it includes that. The whole paragraph is set in that context. And yet, notice the most immediate reason for that kind of praying. Notice the reason in the second half of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As Paul thought about the need for this church in Ephesus and the need for all churches everywhere to be praying for their governmental leaders, the purpose of that praying was, first of all, to have a peaceful life, a quiet life, a godly life a dignified life. As a church that leans young, if you're young, you have been taught that you, um, by virtue of simply being you, can change the world. And that's a heaping pile of nonsense. Most of us, a few years after we're dead, will not be remembered. We will have made a difference perhaps in the lives of 12, 15, maybe if you're particularly strong, 20 people. But ain't nobody, a generation after you, gonna be talking about you. I love you, so I wanna tell you the truth. God's design is not that you would be a world changer, whatever that is. His design is that you would live a peaceful, dignified, quiet life. That's what we want to aspire to. We want to aspire 
to honoring God, loving God's people, making a difference in the sense of, I want to help be a part of a productive society in whatever skill set I've been given. And as much as God would give me opportunity, I want to look for moments to invest in non-Christians that they might hear Jesus. And then I'm going to rot in the ground. That's it. Paul says, pray for your leaders so that the society is not so unhinged that it's very hard to do those things. That's what he's praying for. We're to pray for our governmental authorities for the purpose of society not being in complete meltdown mode. Because when it is, the proclamation of the gospel and the living of quiet, peaceful lives become far more difficult. A life that's godly and dignified means that we're praying for circumstances conducive to godly living and the gospel spreading. There are people here from many parts of the world today. I'm so grateful for that. This church is an international family. We are not tied to geopolitical boundaries. And yet we do have responsibility to pray for our governmental leaders here. We are very much under their authority. We are affected by their actions. And I wonder what God might do if American evangelicals stopped fighting about politics and started praying. All the noise is just that. It's noise. It's useless. What might praying do instead? If we were content to live godly lives, rather than partisan bickering, what might God do? These are things to pray for. Even as we pray for not only our governmental leaders, but people in all kinds of authorities. For mayors, as Mike did today, thank you. For teachers, for bosses, for parents, for coaches, for principals, for husbands, for police. Praying for anyone who has some kind of responsibility for another. We're living in an era in which we're um, constantly being told all authority is bad and throw it off for it's all abusive. Now there is plenty of bad abusive authority that ought to be resisted and corrected. And yet, authority is inevitable. You could have no society without authority. It's impossible. And all our bucking up against authority is simply trying to make ourselves the authority. It's inherently an inconsistent position. What we ought to do instead, God's telling us in the scriptures, is to pray for our authorities and then focus on living godly, peaceful, quiet lives. 
I'm not sure there's something more countercultural we could say this morning. We would be super freaks if we actually did this. And I'm down for that. How about you? <laughs> Asking God as we pray for wisdom, insight, and courage for people in leadership. And asking God to help people see their sins, believe in Jesus, come to Christ, be saved, and enjoy what we enjoy by God's grace. These are the things to pray for. The basis for this kind of praying, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, is first God's desire. So if you're taking notes, that's verses three and four. And second, God's design. That's verses five through seven. So why pray those kinds of prayers? On, on what grounds could we possibly think God would listen to that kind of praying? Number one, God's desire. Number two, God's design. Praying for people is good. It pleases God, which makes sense in light of God's own desires. Verse four tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I hope you're enthralled by this idea. It is beautiful. Don't let your mind first go to, I have a theological system of some kind, and this verse pushes on it. Ah! Don't go first there. Go to, wow, God has a desire for all people. It's incredible. God our Savior is not a territorial God interested in rescuing one type of person in one type of place from one type of sin that they might know him. And the rest, who cares? That's not God. God's not like us. He is benevolent toward those who have taken up offenses toward him. He's gracious and kind and loving and merciful. And his, his heart, his desire is for all peoples. He is not a God for one ethnicity to the detriment of another. He is not for those who support one political party and not another. He is not for one language group and resistant to another. He is not for one type of sinner who's only messed up in little ways and eternally resistant to those who have done the things that you might regard as the big, bad, mean, scary sins. He is a God with open arms. God, Church on Mill, desires all sorts of people to call him Savior. And you find those promises sprinkled through literally your entire Bible. His sights are set on every tribe, tongue, language, and nation that some from every people group would come to know him. This gospel, of course, is exclusive. There is only one God and one Savior, 
And yet it is more inclusive than we ever dare give ourselves to actually imagine and pursue. He is a God for all peoples. His loving, saving desire is global. This is a great, very important part of Christianity. The false teaching that spread in the church in Ephesus surely was asserting the opposite. The effect it was having was the people in the church, instead of standing up strong and looking wide and praying wide, they were instead becoming more and more and more insular, small, unconcerned with others, consumed with themselves. The teaching was having that effect on them. By giving themselves to unbiblical, mythical nonsense, by asserting the righteousness of God is based on being connected in some weird genealogical connection that doesn't actually exist instead of faith in Jesus. By misusing the Old Testament law, in effect saying, you gotta do it this way for God to love you, therefore be like me, and then God will do what he wants to do for you. The false teachers were taking this church down a dead end spiritually. It was going nowhere. It was a rabbit hole whose destination was nothing. Rather than being a light to draw all people to Jesus, they were hearing a gospel that saved people like them. And so the, the, the aim of this prayer is to say, stop that nonsense. It's not true. Lift up your gaze. Look beyond yourself to the fact that God desires all people, that God will save some from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And one of the, one of the most amazing gifts we have as a church family is to simply look around and see we are not homogeneous. We, we don't look like each other. Praise God. We're different. And that difference, those differences illustrate, prove the truthfulness of this prayer that tells us what God desires. God is assembling in his universal church, meaning all Christians everywhere, an incredibly diverse group. And we have the blessing of experiencing some of that. I would say to you this morning that uh, on behalf of all your pastors, this is one of the things we appreciate about you the most. That when someone walks in the doors and is interested in spiritual things here, you are colorblind. You don't care what they look like, what their background is, how much money they appear to have, how educated they are. If they're like you, the way you treat people is the way God would desire them to be treated. Thank you. There are tons of churches not like that. I imagine at this point, the church in Ephesus was not like that. But you are by God's grace. Praise God for that. You believe and live faithfully in light of this reality. And so as I'm, I'm talking about this prayer today, there isn't a rebuke here. 
There is a commendation. Thank you that you understand and you live toward a gospel that is consistent to God's desires. All praise to God, we are not about sameness here. In fact, if you were to go to like an extended family reunion, I don't know if your families do those or not, but that's like when all the freaks come out, (laughs) right? Uh, We make a family reunion look normal. Why would we ever become close? Why would we have relationships? Why would we serve each other? Why would we even, passing on the street, look at one another with a smile? These aren't things people do in Arizona. This isn't the culture of this place. So why are we like that? Many of us have very little in common, and yet we are thriving in the Lord together. Why? Well, because the gospel is the glue that has bound us together. We are not here because we all vote for the same political candidates, enjoy the same hobbies, or are at the same stage in life. What we have in common is Christ, and that's it. And that's all we need. That is supposed to be what binds a church together because it makes it so obvious to the outsider something weird is up there. That weird is a supernatural power that only God has. And so it magnifies Him. It brings Him delight and it gives us opportunity to proclaim the truthfulness of the gospel. We're so thankful you understand this and do the hard work of relating to each other on the basis of Jesus, not on the basis of sameness. God is pleased when we pray with our sights set globally and when we aim to be as diverse as the community we're in because that honors Him, magnifies Him, is consistent with His desires. We excel there. Let's keep aiming to excel still more. We'll be getting together in November for our second prayer meeting of the fall, and uh, that is November 5th. So I do this like once every five years. You can take out your phone right now and lock that date in. November 5th, 6 p.m., we'll gather right here. We'll do a little bit of work in the Word together. We'll sing one song, and then we're going to share and pray. That's it. No lights, no glitter, no fanfare, just a people who love Christ and desire to pray consistent with God's desires. I hope you'll be here. The, the one a couple of weeks ago was a wonderful time. In the meantime, let's keep praying individually. Let's pray in our discipling relationships with each other. Let's pray in our gospel communities. Let's pray in our connection classes. Let's pick up the phone and text one another and say, hey, praying this way for you 
today. Let's read about prayer. Let's read about people in the past who gave themselves to prayer. Let's pray and pray and pray and pray. Prayer is the gas in the tank of the church. It's what gets us where God would have us to go, namely spiritual maturity. Let's give ourselves to prayer. This is consistent with God's desires. It's amazing that the king of the universe would say, Here, he, he, here's what I'm like. And that when he shows us what he's like, it's not dark and evil. It's loving and gracious. It's amazing God we serve. So that's the first basis for this kind of praying. The second is God's design. God's design, verses five through seven. What I mean by that is, how has God worked salvation? And how does he continue to work it out? Verses five and six are very likely a early Christian creed that existed prior to the writing of 1 Timothy in which the church likely already knew that creed. And so Paul's reaching back, he's pulling something they're already familiar with, and he's using it to tell them, hey, you already know this, you already believe this, so pray consistent with it. I've already read it, but it's worth reading again, verses five and six. In fact, I'd invite you, would you read it with me? For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Fantastic couple of verses for you to commit to, to memory and to consider their meaning very closely. Beloved, we must pray for people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior to see this truth to see their need for God's grace, to come face to face with their sinfulness, to see that in Christ there is forgiveness, and to come to believe that Jesus died and rose again because there's only one God, because there's only one mediator, because God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus came, because he gave himself on the cross as a ransom for all, because he rose again to demonstrate that that ransom is in fact true and offered to all and acceptable in Christ. In a mere two verses, there's so much there about the design of God. This is frankly a, a, a succinct summary of your Bible. It's incredible. Brothers and sisters, far more important than the size of the church than whether or not we're able to get the new building built we so desperately need here. Vastly more significant than the programs we run or the vibe we give off is this. Verse seven, are we adhering to the gospel and the preaching of it? Like Paul gave his life to, because Jesus alone is the mediator between God and people. Amen. To be right with God his work as a ransom must be applied to us. 
It doesn't matter what family you're born into, what country you're from, what things you have kept yourself from. There is need for a ransom, and that ransom must be applied to each and every individual if they would become right with God. We don't get in by rubbing up next to Christians. We've got to personally give ourselves to Christ that we might be saved. If you're listening to the sermon and you're considering the claims of Christianity, but you are not yet convinced enough to trust Christ with your life, I'd encourage you to look long and hard at verses five to six. To pray, God, I don't even know if you're real or there, but if you are, would you convince me that those things are true? Would you corroborate them with other truths in the scriptures? And would you help me to see my need for it? You can talk to God like that, even if you're not sure he's listening or is there. Focus your attention as you do so, I would encourage you in verse five, on the word between. Between. It says there is one mediator between God and men. The word for men there, the Greek word is the word for humanity. So he's not saying, ladies, that only men are bad enough to need a mediator. <laughs> Although we are first in line. He's saying people, humans, everyone needs Jesus. But that word between, friend, people are created to be in a peaceful, loving relationship with God. Creator, creation, in harmony. That's why people exist. Because we're all made in the image of God. But we've chosen to rebel against God. That started with Adam and Eve's failure to trust and obey in the garden. That kicked off the brokenness of the world. And yet we've all made our own contributions to it. And so now, creator and creation, there, there is a between us. There is a gap. It's a chasm so deep that it cannot be resolved through any human effort whatsoever. There are no amount of good things you can do to bridge that between. And so, do you recognize your lack of peace with God and your lack of peace with people? I mean, when the iPhone is down, the iPad is off, the TV is off, the music is off, when it's quiet, do you sense in your own soul the lack of connectivity and harmony and peace? Do your thoughts rather quickly turn dark? Why is that? Why is it we're so addicted to distraction? 
It's because we're broken on the inside, apart from God. And that brokenness is not mainly due to the stuff other people have done to us, but rather what we are. We are people created for something that we don't have, namely peace with God. But there is a between, a betweener, one who's come to bridge that gap, to resolve it, to fix it, to heal it. His name is Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the sin and its consequences dying in place of sinners so that that cross might quite literally be the gap filler drawing people back into harmony with their Savior. This is the way of salvation. It is the only way to be made right with God. And so won't you repent of your sin? Yield to God and ask God to save you. That's all that he asks. He asks that you believe this message and respond to it with trust, with faith, that you just cast yourself on God and say, I've tried everything else. I'm done trying. I instead want to rest in Christ. This offer of peace with God is exclusive because there is only one way through which it exists and can be applied to you. But friend, it is radically inclusive. It is available to all people everywhere because God desires that all kinds of people would be saved. Church, let's pray for all people and preach to all people for the gospel is for all people. That's what this paragraph says. This is God's desire. This is God's design. And therefore, let's pray for all. You've listened so well today, and I have poked in a few controversial areas. I hope that you feel loved and encouraged by that. In closing, would you consider a couple points of application? Number one, what we pray together in public should also have an echo in what you pray in private. Are you praying these sorts of prayers? And in particular, are there any kinds or sorts of people that really, if you're honest, are, you, you have blinders to because you're not particularly interested in those kinds of people showing up here. Are there folks that you think would just disrupt your comfortability and therefore we're a church for all except those? Do some heart work. See if that's down in there. Frankly, I am prone to that. 
in a particular realm. My guess is I'm not the only one. Number two, as Church on Mill is growing, getting bigger, and therefore changing, and feeling different, there are enough of us now that unless you're like got a superpower with names, you're not going to know everybody. And for those who came here because you wanted a small church, I'd encourage you not to have a small God with a small gospel. It's okay to get bigger. Let's not bemoan these inevitable changes, but adapt and rejoice that God is seeing fit to grow us. And the goal isn't to get bigger and bigger and bigger so that we can brand ourselves and then have little church on mills all over the place. The goal is to to grow with anyone God rescues and then as much as possible send to start new works other places. This reflects God's heart. And finally, number three, as your pastors were trying to increase Church on Mill's commitment to prayer, we have seen the need for this and we want to grow in it. I don't think it's been given the attention it deserves. Would you pray for us as we try to grow and adapt in that way? And would you give yourselves to the same? Because the opportunities God's giving us as a congregation are going to crush us unless God strengthens us in prayer. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for a sweet church family Thank you that you've instructed us what to do in praying. And as I've labored here to show what you say, we pray that you would apply it to us by your spirit, each and every one. We ask you that those who don't know you would be saved, that those who do would be encouraged with the kind of God you are, And that all would fall in love with you fresh and new again this morning. As we've considered the way in which you're for all people. What a God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.